Hi, my name is John Light, and I've spent over 20 years working throughout all corners of the recruiting world. Our podcast, Drowning in the Tech Talent Pool, is a resource to help you stay afloat and get ahead of your competition. Hi, and welcome to Drowning in the Tech Talent Pool. I'm John Light, the president of Sabretooth. Uh, is our sponsor here, and I've got with me this morning, and good morning as well, uh, Mo Dastagir. Uh, Mo and I have known each other for a little while now, and, and what I've found to be remarkable is when you look over the course of his career up to the CTO and CIO level, uh, you've been in some wildly different contexts, Mo, and I was hoping that as we get started, maybe you could spend a minute and by way of introduction, talk a little bit about what your career path has been and, and what it looks like going forward. And I'm very curious, too, to understand how someone who was the number three hire for Amazon India in this hyper growth phase uh, was prepared to go into that context. And if maybe you weren't, I don't know, uh, that seems like it's a, a high hill to climb. And I'd love to love to hear some more about that as we go forward. No, thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Amazon. It was an, It's always been for me an interesting journey. I mean, uh, I, you know, tell most people that um, the role that I play today is just a consequence of all the other roles that I've done and learned from over the right. course of my career. Living in three different countries, working in different companies, and each one of them has added so much value uh, to my career and kind of in shaping. Um, where I am and what I do and how I do it today. And I, you know, continuously still try to learn um, from all right. my experiences because, you know, it's it's a journey. Amazon was an interesting one. When I joined Amazon, I tell people, you know, the first time I interviewed with Amazon, they they just come to the city that I'm from in India called Hyderabad. And there were a few of them just camped up in a hotel, in a Taj uh, hotel. That mm-hmm. was the offices. They hadn't located where their offices were going to be. And um, you know, they had some general idea and hypothesis of how they're going to bring this together. And they hired folks like me. So the, I remember the first interview I had with a gentleman, this was early 2000s, was in the lobby of the hotel. That's when you can smoke inside the hotel. And the gentleman was sitting there smoking, older gentleman, <laughs> won't take his name. And uh, I went up to see him and he was, he was wearing shorts and Birkenstocks and sitting there. I didn't know that. You know, I you know, you go for an interview prepared, but there was the guy. He was smoking, having a cup of coffee in Berkey's and uh, shorts, khaki more, shorts. More of a tourist than a... Uh, yeah, than a, exactly. Exactly. I asked, I asked the front desk and they said, that, that's the man you want to meet. And I I just couldn't understand. You know, it was culturally, it was very different for me from right. the get-go. And, uh, and he asked me what I knew about Amazon. I said, aren't you guys like a bookstore? Um, you know, online bookstore. That's how my conversation honestly started. So as I sat down, he offered me a cigarette. I said, no, thank you. And I said, so he said, what do you know about us? I said, I, th- I think you're a bookstore. Um, but that's how the conversation started. And from there, we, you know, that was those were the days when Amazon, and not a, not a lot of people know this, but Amazon not only was trying to grow out of that bookstore category, but at the same time used to be, the e-commerce and the customer service partner for Toys R Us and Target. No, I didn't so, recall that. Okay. So they had built the entire storefront, e-commerce storefront for, for both Toys R Us and Target and used mm-hmm. to do support, technical support and customer service support for them. Okay. So the, the initial about, uh, you know, the sp- if you will stint to with Amazon was trying to be, you know, was being with a group of people 
and we were involved in everything from site selection to you would imagine in a startup you're a master of everything you're the guy who's ordering mm-hmm. the stationery to the guy who's now sitting in front of um government official trying to you know negotiate something so we pretty much did everything in the first couple of months trying to get it off the ground it's fantastic experience a lot of learnings there and then once we had the base operation set we worked uh, and by the way that's where i met my now wife of three children um wow. we had a we had a group of people that we had flown in from uh, the uh, the united states to india to help us start transitioning um some of the work that used to be done out of the us into india to start getting acclimated to right. how the processes and the systems and everything worked so that's how we started i mean interesting experience uh those were the days where amazon was not what amazon is today but uh, you would see jeff bezos in the hallways white t-shirt mm-hmm. uh driving a prius you know not the jeff bezos you do to say to see today but really the nerd jeff bezos riding you know riding a prius and coming to work and standing in the lunch line with everybody you said um, the nerd jeff bezos yes that's right i said the tech nerd the, te- the tech the tech nerd not the movie star not the mogul um, not the mogul there jeff bezos but really the you know he wanted to sit on lunch tables and talk to people yeah and wanted to get to know you so very wildly different experience um yeah so incredible from there and then you know then i had an opportunity to move to europe uh, to the european region that's when i left amazon at the peak of the financial crisis and again this usually um makes people chuckle when my wife and i just had gotten married we sold a boatload of our amazon stock at $100 a share in 2008 we thought we just crushed it it can't get any better than this oh man right. oh. <laughs> oh oh so, so uh you know that's we moved to europe and then uh, from there you stayed a couple of years in europe and fast forward to you know um uh, 2015 came to the united states worked for uh, sears Mm-hmm. Uh, that was an another in, wildly interesting journey amazing experience i loved working in sears working closely with folks who've been there for a long time so wasn't that yeah. though like the complete other side of the equation you know the other side of the road you know fast lane versus slow lane compared to uh ramping up amazon in india yeah it was it was, you know it was an interesting journey and, and i think the transient phase that I was in uh, before I came to Sears I think the european if I wouldn't have done um the stint in switzerland for about 8 years I think the shock would have been higher okay but I think the 8 years in switzerland really prepared me because when I left amazon I went to work for a company called Novartis mm-hmm. uh, in in Basel Switzerland big large pharma company been there for 100 years worked for a, you know as a combination it got remanicured but Siba Gaigi was the company that was there for a long time and right after that worked for Roche Di- uh, Diagnostics which was another 100 plus years so and then Switzerland has a very peculiar way of working they're not as aggressive as the US side so you know not aggressive in terms of hmm. pushing projects forward they're more consensus driven they're more uh, driven by long range projects as opposed to the agile short doom fast doom today right right um, so my initial shock was the transition from amazon to novartis i remember the first meeting i showed up at novartis was you know after a couple of years at amazon sweatshirt and jeans and at novartis everybody's wearing a suit and <laughs> uh, and uh, in my first week i started putting my arms around certain initiatives that i started pushing and i remember again names not taken my swiss german uh, boss pulling me aside and saying are you under some kind she said are you under some kind of stress i'm like no 
So she's like, why are you pushing so hard? So I'm like, this is normal. <laughs> I said, I said, excuse me. I said, she, so she, you know, she was, she said, no, no, no. You know, you don't have to be this aggressive. You don't have to push this hard. So, you know, that, that transition wow. was, you know, that really helped me understand that not all places work like that startup, go, go, go. Mm-hmm. Everything has to be done. And you're working 65, 70 hour weeks and trying to push uh, everything through the gate. I mean, that was Amazon startup culture. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I remember Jeff used to say this in town halls. Um, we need to move, and he used to call it internet time, which is instantaneously. Right. We're we're moving fast. So anyway, so that transition helped. When I came to Sears, um, um, again, fantastic company, tremendous amount of legacy, uh, great people. Um, but it was different in the sense that um, system process, et cetera, wise was, you know, it was a different cultural environment entirely. There were people there who were spent their entire careers, 40, 50 years at that company. Right. A lot of tribal knowledge, uh, uh, um, not, a, not, not have the ability to move fast. Um, you know, a lot of, um, um, if you will, resistance in the organization to change. And that was also mm-hmm. the consequence of some of the challenges that, uh, uh, that was also the, the reason why some of the challenges Sears faced, they faced. Um, so it was interesting. Then, you know, I had to reacclimate myself to try to, and I love transformations. That's my background. What, what right. brought me to Sears was the ability to go into a company who had all this storied history. They were the original Amazon of right. the retail world. Right. Well, their right. catalog so, was everything back in, absolutely. in you know, last early last century. I mean, Ab- you, you could buy a house through it. Absolutely. Everything. Right. I remember my mom getting that catalog and then folding pages and, you know, keeping bookmarkers that she right. didn't want to talk to my dad about. Right. I mean, so I remember. So it was the opportunity to put your hands into something that had that kind of history uh, and Americana. I mean, you know, just to be involved right. in something that you could make some impact was too enticing. So, you know, made the transition from Switzerland to the Chicago land area. And we've been here ever since. But, you know, the opportunity with Sears was to, uh, with the home services division, was to really be part of something that you could transform and bring mm-hmm. into the digital age. Um, to bring that Amazon, uh, Je- uh, um, Eddie Lampert, our CEO and chairman uh, at that moment in time, and still was the CEO and chairman, was very bullish about transitioning the company from, you know, uh, com- from where it was into competing with Amazon. So a lot of us who had that Amazon background were hired to accelerate okay. uh, that change and that evolution and that transformation. So let me ask, and I don't want to get off track from the original question, but I'm curious, you know, when you look at those very different contexts, and it's funny because I was just thinking that in a real sense, even though you weren't there when Sears was founded, in a real sense, you're kind of bookending a whole century, right? Old old guard versus new guard, old school, yeah. new school, that sort of thing. But I'm curious, when you look back in those two different contexts, two different cultures in a way about how they go about their business, Right. How did that impact your ability to attract and manage and develop talent in your organization? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a great question. The, I, at a, you know, in those stages, I mean, I'm just going to ask you to ignore the current economic environment that we're in and all the, you know, right. all the challenges with Amazon and exits and departures, et cetera. But if you put Amazon in that outside of that context, 
I mean, the brand sells itself. You say you work for mm-hmm. Amazon and you're trying to hire talent for Amazon, and there boom. is a they boom right that you're getting every, any kind of talent wherever you want, whatever you want, you have access to that kind of talent. It was a privilege to be at Amazon that way, and it always has been. Mm-hmm. Um, Amazon attracts the top tier talent from the top schools and top engineers and. You know, I mean, staff according, uh, across any vertical you want, accounting, finance, customer service, mm-hmm. they get to get the cream of the uh, crop. Um, and then you draw the parallel to a company like Sears where, um, you know, where there were challenges and already there was a significant amount of brand erosion and you come into the company and you want to attract and hire talent. Mm-hmm. Um, you, I learned that you would have to look at it two ways. One is... Um, be very specific with the talent that you're trying to hire because um, when you go out in the market, you want to be able to explain to people the rationale behind why they should take the plunge into a company like Amazon, what opportunity, uh, sorry, uh, like Sears, what right. opportunity it presents. Um, and there are a lot of folks like me who uh, love to be part of our, again, love tough challenges, love uh, um, the ability to be part of a transformation, love the ability to leave their own mark on something mm-hmm. and that's the kind of talent you seek you want an engineer who wants a tough challenge like i give an example i hired somebody back then which was hey we want to get off mainframes when have you heard that before right? <laughs> we have so oh about and, uh 99 maybe <laughs> yeah so every major a- application that we had was sitting on mainframes that hadn't been touched in wow. decades so we had to get off those mainframes. And when you start looking at talent who has the ability to do that, you have to give them a very convincing challenge mm-hmm. that they would look at and say, hey, I want to go do that. That's going to be pretty cool. Right. And that was one part of it. The other part of it was you have this retrenched talent that um, has all this legacy know-how, knowledge at an application level, but most importantly, also at a business level. Mm-hmm. How do you retain that talent and give them the motivation to kind of run your transformation. So it required me and my leaders to really identify certain people in the organization that we knew were important to the organization and create a very tailor-made upskill, reskill program for them. So okay. If I was go- so if I was looking at someone who had maintained the mainframe so in the last two decades, he's the only person in the building, by the way, it's true, who knew those those We can't lose that guy. Right. But at the same time, how do you incent that person to help you get off right. mainframes? So, you know, we use that person to really help us uh, not only craft the plan for getting off the mainframes because of the business processes mm-hmm. and the logic that was built into the system, but at the same time, reskilled that person and upskilled him, if you will, into becoming a low code developer. So we moved into, you know, we were trying to develop applications from the ground up and we invested the time and energy to train that person and say, your new. Um, direction in your career, if you're interested, would be to become this low-code, no-code developer, which the market mm-hmm. is looking for. And we're ready to invest. Let's figure this out. So you really want, my point to you is you really want to balance out. That's where right. you need to be able to not only look at outside in uh, outside uh, skills, but also look inwards and determine um, what really would motivate people and mm-hmm. what kind of career pathing you could do for them, um, as opposed to just looking at, hey, you know what? Yeah, this person's been there for the last 20 years, so um, I don't know what to do with them. So it was a very interesting journey. Actually, I like that idea, especially there at the end, that, okay, you've been here a couple decades, but it's not like we're going to push you to the curb, Yeah. right? There's, there's, there, there's parts of career that can maybe need to get left behind 
because mm-hmm. technology's left it behind. But let's let's repurpose that that effort and that attitude and that brain power uh, and that history and carry it forward into something that's applicable in the current context. I like that a lot because, you know, I was just thinking as you're talking about the contrast between the two on Amazon on one side. Hey, I'm Amazon. Come here. Right. Yep. It's mm-hmm. like. Uh, it, well, it's like any of the big companies, Facebook, Amazon, so on and so mm-hmm. forth, Google. I think in some instances, they could probably get away with paying people a little bit less because there's value of having our name on your resume. Absolutely. Right? And they do. And they do. And yeah. But when you go to a place like Sears, and like you said, a significant market erosion, mm-hmm. um, you know, made some missteps, had a lot of challenges mm-hmm. in the economy. You had to get in into the guts of recruiting, I think, because mm-hmm. in my opinion, that starts on the front end when you're trying to explain the opportunity in a way that a candidate, whether they're internal or external, hears it and it resonates and they say, I want to be a part of that story. Because if somebody doesn't buy into being a part of your story, they're just a rent a hand, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, exactly what you said. On the Amazon side, it's, hey, I'm Amazon. Come join me. Let's go do something pretty right. cool. On the Sears side, it is, hey, I have an opportunity for you at Sears. Let me explain why this makes sense for you. Mm-hmm. Right. So you really have to be able to contextualize and give the person on the other side, match the opportunity with what you think they can achieve, and hopefully make it enticing enough that mm-hmm. they look at it and they say, hey, wait a minute, this is going to be pretty, it's going to be pretty wild if I got involved in something like this. Right. So we 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 had the opportunity to really parse out a lot of those um, those kind of opportunities because you want um, not only to attract the high, like you said hired hand you want to attract that talent but at the same time that pa- talent is potentially going to play a vital role yes uh, in that transformation well um, and and that talent's a big part in that context that talent's a big part of the the company's identity right. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to evolve the culture of an organization, in my opinion, just me talking, you know, over 20 years headhunting and seeing these scenarios time and time again, you, you almost have to get some member of the herd who's been there for a long time to buy into that, right? And agree that, okay, we need to change. And that change may not be wholesale on the front end. It may be incremental, but it's got to have that purposeful intent to get to this point down the road. Um, and people will follow those leaders if you identify those leaders and those people may be quiet. Mm-hmm. They may not have, uh, you know, articles and, and content out there, but people look to them. Hey, what is Joe doing or Sally doing? Well, man, they're changing a little bit how they go about their day, how they go about the business and repurposing for those skills. Upskilling, mm-hmm. I think, is phenomenal. And I think that it's one of the biggest challenges people have when it comes to getting talent and when it comes to retaining and developing talent is first defining what you want people to do. Mm -hmm. What is this person going to come in? Where is their value add to the organization? And on the flip side, the other side of the coin, where's the value add to their career? Because if you can't define both of those, then you got nothing. And I think one of the big mistakes companies make is that they don't really put the effort and time into refi- defining and refining those things for candidates and for the organization. Because right. it's a you have to define. You have to define your why. Yeah. It has to be clear enough and articulate enough that you should be, you and I should be able to sit down and say, here's the why, right? Why you should consider it or why we're going to do this yep. or why this is important. Unless if you don't define that why, it becomes very hard. 
um, to attract talent. And that's true for any job, but in especially, especially in companies like, um, um, you know, again, challenged environments like Sears, it is twice as hard or, or right. really, really hard. I don't know. Twice may twice may be a <laughs> even really really hard. Maybe a little bit of an understatement because uh, you know we've all worked with companies and been in, scenar- in scenarios where it seems like there's a moving target. Where okay, we yeah. we interviewed a candidate, we interviewed three candidates, whatever the number is. Eh, you know, even though they checked every box, it doesn't really make sense. Okay, well, why aren't we talking about the parts that don't make sense? Why haven't you defined that? or at least let me help you define it. Let me, let's do get some interrogatories going. And the fact that you could go through and have that interrogatory internally before doing it, looking internal, then external and being strategic about it. I, I admire that. That's something a lot of companies are lacking. Um, and I'm curious when you get those lessons, Amazon, Hey, you want to come work for Amazon? Yes, I do. Hey, you want to come work for Sears catalog company? What? Um, Taking those very dis- different experiences, you know, as you went forward in your career after Sears, did that influence how you approached your next career step? And did it influence how you approached other talent as needed in that time? Most definitely. I, and I, I, like I said in my introduction, I, I just want to believe and I, I truly believe it. Um that how I operate today is in that constant state of evolution. I'm learning in every environment that I'm in. I, I'm like, wait a minute, that's not how I thought about it before. So let me, you know, right. I need to change the way I think and orient myself to something. So um, in that, you know, my strategy when it comes to talent attraction and talent retention has continued to evolve as a consequence of working for companies like Amazon or Novartis or Roche or Sears. Um, after Sears, I went to a cannabis startup company. That was an amazing time. I mean, I walked into a company not knowing anything about that category, having all of right. like two or three people in technology. And we took it from a very small company to an $850 million company about four years. So Whew. every every Mercy. environment that you're in, you know, in that, like, I'll, again, just a little bit after Sears, in that environment, you would just... There was nothing you could do that could keep pace that kind of, with that kind of growth. The company was growing at such a fast clip that you were only chasing from right. a technology standpoint, right? So, uh, my point to you is, um, I've learned that if you want to attract talent and if you want to retain talent, you have to be, um, you have to spend the time being diligent mm-hmm. about understanding, like I said, the why. And I even when I interview for positions for roles, I frequently will ask companies. So why are you looking to hire a CIO? Like what what is your expectation from that role? Right. How does it fit into the culture? What are you expecting for them to achieve? Um, you know, those kind of questions really start telling you a lot about the company in general. But those are the kind of questions I also try to define when I'm interviewing candidates because I want to be able to see, um, you know, how I would be, again, top talent, you want to be able to explain to them what they would be doing here and why it is important, how they fit into the machine, right. you know, how the performance will be gauged, um, where you see them in the next couple of years, what kind of impact they would be making to either the company itself or the category or the vertical or the industry. You want to be able to, if you want to attract top talent, you want to be able to do that. And it's the same also for talent retention. Mm-hmm. Um, I was mentioning this to someone yesterday. I said, um, you know, coming from a lot of mergers and acquisition type of work that I've done in the last decade, one of the things I've learned is you have to be extremely articulate about um, with some level of frequency, you need to get in front of your people and explain where the company is heading, what the strategy is, what role technology plays in it, why you 
um, John Light are important to the larger scheme of things. Those things are important. To so, so you need to you need to put on a, a, a t-shirt, some cargo shorts, and some Berkies, and walk into the cafeteria or to the restaurant yeah, right. with everybody. Yeah, right. <laughs> Man, I can't pull it. I cannot. Pull it. He's a dear friend of mine now. I'm not trying to put him on the spot. That's the reason I don't say his name. But that was the funniest interview ever. I mean, him sitting in in the uh, big couch, and this is when you could smoke inside closed doors, right, right? right? So early 2000s. So it was sitting in Berkeys and smoking a cigarette was the funniest but, thing ever. <laughs> I'm just trying to think back because when I first got into the headhunting business, I worked for a gentleman who had been a retained uh, headhunter for years, right? And uh, Mike had spent 10 years in Marine Corps and heaven help you if you were doing training or something in door shuts because you got the DI treatment, you know, and it was, it was vibrant and colorful and he would always light a cigarette up, take a drag on it, look at you. And this is back in the nineties, right? So yeah, they'd look at you and go, and you're just sitting there. Yes, sir. (laughs) You know, I'll treat it. We'll get it better. But it's amazing how that influences, you know, going forward. But it also, to your point a moment ago, and I think this is something a lot of people miss out on, you have to set expectations and you have to Mm -hmm. meet them. Mm -hmm. And the expectations that that gentleman set when you first met him were like, hey, you know, we take ourselves seriously, obviously, but we're also relaxed about it. You know, we're Mm -hmm. part of this new uh, evolution in the marketplace, right? Whereas you go to someplace, like you said, in Switzerland, well, everybody's suited up. Yep. You know, and if you rolled in there wearing a pair of Crocs, uh, jeans and a T-shirt, you might be a little. I I remember interviewing back when I was in accounting in the 90s for a company in Austin. And I walked in and I was suited up because that's, you know, was expectation in my mind. Sure. Walked in there and interviewed. Everybody's walking around in shorts and flip flops. And we went past their break room. There were these open pizza boxes and empty beer bottles everywhere. And I'm like, I am not matching a hatch. And this is a dead deal. It's not going anywhere because we have completely different sets of expectations. Um, you know, that's the number one killer right there. There's a fantastic study I read years ago that this fellow had followed 20,000 new hires for three years. 20,000. This is across all functions at various levels. Um, you know, hundreds of uh, several hundred companies. Um, I think it was 800 companies. And like 1,300 hiring managers, That's whatever the numbers were, they're big. 20,000 new hires. At the end of three years, 19%, 19% were considered successful hires. Wow. Okay. 19%. Now, the rest split almost evenly. People who left within a year mm-hmm. and a group which the hiring team, knowing what they knew three years later, would have made a different decision. Sure. Because these people are coming in and they're just kind of treading water. They're not really gaining value to themselves outside of a paycheck. They're not really delivering value to the organization. But 19%. And one of the major factors of that is mismanagement, missetting of expectations. Um, one of my pet peeves, and, and you could probably relate with this, you know, we talk about how specific you got to get. If you're going to have, if you're going to retrain, re upskill the, the person there at Sears, to go to mainframes to something different, right? Because the company has to evolve. You got to set expectations and you got to deliver on those expectations. We're going to do yeah. this training. We're going to do that. This is the job we want you to land in. Here's what it's going to take to get there. Yeah. You see job descriptions and resumes all the time that list requirements and they list qualifications, but they don't share value impact. They don't share how what you do 
is going to make a difference for the company right. and for yourself. And I love where you're going with this. You, you, you obviously, you know, you talk about evolving every step. Uh, that's a hard thing to do because most people I talk to are still trying to do things the way they did in the eighties. Yeah. And the eighties were yeah. a great time. I mean, a lot of good music, some good food, you know, back when Crisco was still something that people used to make fried chicken and whatnot. <laughs> but, sure. but now it's not. Now we gotta, we gotta go to the people. We gotta set expectations. We gotta execute on them. Um, and doing it in different contexts. I gotta, I gotta tell you, Mo, I mean, we've talked a little bit before, but I, I admire that, that I respect that a lot. That's hard to do yeah. that. And I think the world is going to boomerang back to that. My hypothesis is in the last decade and a half, I think, you know, that war for talent or whatever you want to call it, people are trying to hire as many bodies as they can because they were growing right. at that fast clip. Right. But I think with the mass exodus of talent, where there's a lot of talent in available in the market today, I think the systemic evolution now dictates that companies would have to be able to articulate, like you said, there is job description, there is qualification. And if I were in that seat, I would add another layer, which is this is what we expect from this role. Right. Here are your goals right. that we want you Here to achieve. Here are your goals. Yeah. Right. yeah that's, that would makes it easier for the hiring manager to set expectations from the get-go. Right. And the person who's applying comes into it knowing, oh, okay, this is what you want this role to achieve in the next 24 months. You mean, I actually right. have a, let's just say, a static target instead of a moving target mm -hmm. to shoot at, to put mm -hmm. my effort into. Mm -hmm. And I would add a fourth thing in there. Yeah. I think it's important to tell the company story. Yeah. You know, when you look at Amazon or Novartis or you, you go over to Sears, there is a story there that means something that carries value. And, and we could say it's, it's the brand, it's goodwill, it's, it's how it's perceived in the market, blah, 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 blah. But the fact is, people want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. Most folks do. Mm -hmm. You know, even entrepreneurs, we have this attitude that, hey, we're going to create something that's more than just me. And I found that when someone... When that when that bell is rung, when it, that story resonates, the whole process gets easier. So that's the only thing, and you could weave that into any one of the three parts. But I really think I agree. Get, getting I agree. that story out there is is critical, not just to setting expectations, but to giving clarity for the culture. And I just, you know, I I just have an accounting degree. I'm not this highly educated master's PhD, except for the University of Hard Knocks and. I just define culture real simple. It's the how we go about our business. It's the how we go about life. And the closer the candidate or the the employee coming in, how they go about things is aligned with how the organization goes about things. The more energy everybody has to put into execution rather than putting up kind of a, a facade, you know, being a people pleaser, if you will. Um, and that's a, I, I think that's super critical. I think you're spot on on that. Yeah, because ultimately it's people, right? People right. dealing with other people. Uh, titles may differ, but it's people dealing with other people. And when uh, outside of work, if you and I were um, acquaintances or going to be friends, how do we, what do we do? We evaluate each other based on values that we perceive right. that align with each other. Um, and, you know, uh, you like the things I like. We have things in common. You have the same values and belief that I have the same values. And, and you know, that's how friendships occur. It's... I don't, I, I've always struggled with the fact that how that has not translated into the same value and belief mm -hmm. um, system uh, in a work environment because, because you, it's the same. It's, you know, if you are, 
the organization if you think about organizations as a living breathing organism it has to right. be able to demonstrate the values it stands behind does its story um its way of engaging with you its way of what it expects from you and what you can expect from it i mean if you start thinking about it from that um mm-hmm. parallel then you absolutely know that from the get go that those cultural nuances have to be brought forward into a discussion yeah because otherwise you know it's like a, it's like two people getting together in a marriage realizing oh my god we're so different what's that, that show <laughs> was it 90 day fiance or married at first sight there's some reality show i've never watched it just seeing the title and the advertisements yeah, terrify me but it's the me. same but it's the same yeah. the, if you think about it it's the same concept right i mean you said it 19% succeed so i think about the other um you know a percentage that's left behind 81% what happens you get in you're like oh my god it's yeah. not for me or the company's like this guy doesn't fit now in our- well, i mean 81% mo that either left were fired mm-hmm. or they're just treading water they're not really mm-hmm. doing anything they're just mi- mm-hmm. maybe not even meeting minimum expectations or barely doing it I, you know and maybe it's me but how do you live your life like that you know mm-hmm. uh, i can understand doing something temporarily like that, I, I, you know, life happens, and and let's face it, I've, you know, I've been doing this business so long, I've seen some of the craziest things happen. I even had a candidate I placed once broke my heart. I'm not going to name names right now, but I had a candidate. Uh, I put him with a company; it's a huge move for him. Uh, they loved him; he loved them. Forty five days in, somebody ran a stop sign and killed him. Oh man! And I've seen that all the way to. Uh, you know, 45 days in or 30 days in or whatever, somebody going, well, I've just decided I'm going to go live on in a tent on a beach in Hawaii. True story. True story. 2009, maybe, I think is when that happened. This guy got this great opportunity, goes in, he's in Fuego, and he says, yeah, my brother's living on the beach in Hawaii, and I, I just decided I'm going to go do that. You imagine getting that phone call, right? Um, yeah, right. From, from one extreme to the other. And I think a large part of that is what they valued, uh, what he valued, was different from what the company valued. That's right. Yeah. Right? And and you got to have alignment. You got you to gotta really make it make sense. Now, um, I want to circle back and finish, you know, a little bit on the first line of questioning because I got a hunch we could be going on for another hour and a half. And I, I don't know that being the last day of school and it's half days everywhere. And I don't know if we're going to make it that long before the lid comes off of everything. But when you look forward where you're at Mo and this fabulous background you have, you know, the, the, the different things you've done, the different contexts, which I think really shows an immense amount of range and resourcefulness. When you look forward, if you were going to kind of design, Hey, what's next in your mind, what are the, what maybe the top two or three qualities that you would like to see in that next step that would really resonate and, and be the challenge that would, would, would get your attention? You know, for me, the consistent theme has been um, from a challenge standpoint, I want to be part of something or I like to be part of something. Let me put it this way. Like I like to be involved in environments which are trying to grow a business from X to Y. Right. So that ha- it has to be, in, you know, I like growth mode companies. I like companies that are trying to transform. Love companies who have a storied history, brand, uh, et cetera, but now are trying to pivot into a different environment. So love those kind of transformation um, stories. I enjoy them. Um, love being part of environments where, um, 
you know, the, the interesting part of being in the technology world today is anybody you talk to is a self-proclaimed technologist, right? Because you use your phone, so you think you know everything you need to know. But, you know, it's it's fine because I like the fact that technology is mass consumerized. Mm-hmm. So there's a higher, every company on the planet today is a technology company. But um, what would be interesting is what you're going to do with technology to drive your business forward. Is it going to change, okay. materially impact customer experience? It is going, or is it going to change your speed to market? Is it going to change the way you operate your physical environment like stores? Like those, those kind of challenges, I really enjoy trying to go figure it out. You know, mm-hmm. figure out how you would um, improve the way you would engage with your customers. Figure out a way of how you would, you know, grow a new category um, or penetrate a new market. Those things are always wildly interesting. And the last thing is, I, I got to tell you, John, I love working with people. I mm-hmm. mean, people, you know, being involved with uh, in any company where there are interesting people, where you get to learn from them. I think there's no age for learning. I mean, um, again, someone who's been in... A, in a, a executive management role for almost close to a decade now, I'll tell you, I learn every day. There right. are some people that I talk to who are not in the C-suite, right? There are people who are you meet during the course of your journey in the company. You're like, wait a minute, that guy is off the chart smart. What can I learn from that person? What mm-hmm. I didn't know. So that I really enjoy that journey, that journey of constantly learning and evaluating and saying, this person knows something that you didn't know. How do you learn that? How do you continuously evolve yourself um, um, into, you know, being a better leader or a better technologist or a right. better transformation expert, whatever the case may be. So I really enjoy those three things, the people side of it, the transformation side of it. And of course, moving that, like I said, moving from A to B or X to the Y. The leap. Yeah, the leap. The leap. I love, I love leaps. I love, I yeah. love thinking big. Um, you know, it's um, in my mind, as I mentioned earlier this week to someone, I said, in my mind, it's harder to operate when you don't have a vision. Every leader, every company needs to have a vision because when you have a vision, you can reverse engineer your way backwards and say, okay, if I have to get there, how do I do it? Well, executing without a target in mind is not execution. That's where it becomes difficult, right? I mean, that's where if you're in that, if you don't have a vision statement or a a determined target in mind, you don't know where you're heading. You You cannot be in this continuous, we will figure it out mode. You need to be able to say clearly, we're going to go take that hill. Now we need to figure out how. Right. The how, in my mind, is easier. But if the why and the what is not defined, the how becomes a heck of a lot more difficult. Yeah, well, the how is one of those things you can figure out on the way. Oh, yeah. In, in a, in a sense, you know. Um, but, hey, let me so, ask you this. So you're up in the Chicagoland area. Mm-hmm. I haven't been to Chicago in a while. But I used to stay when I went up for business at this Crown Plaza. I think it was on the loop. And. If I turned one way out of the parking lot, it was Greek town. If I turned the other way, it was West Randolph. Yep. And over the trips, I worked my way through both of those areas <laughs> quite well. Um, sure. I'm just curious. Do you get over there often? What what uh, what is the restaurant next time I'm up in Chicago that I should I should tackle? I I, I I'll tell you right now, Randolph Street. When it comes to food and when it comes to restaurants, you are spoiled for choices. I yeah. mean. Every every other month, something new. My favorite right now is the 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 girl and the goat. Yeah, uh, yeah. I went to the cafe uh, to her, her her second tier one, and yeah. had the fat Elvis. Yeah, you which, can't go wrong with girl and the goat. You can't go wrong with Ashaval. 
Okay. Uh, just fantastic restaurants on, uh, uh, there's a, my wife and I, I mean, we take the kids, um, our favorite Moroccan restaurant is on that strip. Mm. So a uh, great Moroccan food down to Moroccan uh, architecture inside. It's no like kidding. sitting in a, in a, in a casbah, in a, you know, in a, in a tent. So, so, so if I'm up in Chicago anytime in the future here, then all I got to do is place a phone call and you'll, you'll hey, get the hook up. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> you, let, you let me know when. No, let me know when. that'd be fun. That'd be a blast. I'd appreciate yeah, they, doing it. Yeah, they have they have uh, and traditional Moroccan cuisine. It's like being in Morocco. We you know mm-hmm. we love uh, food from that North African region. So you know it's great. I'd love to take you. Oh, no, I'd love it. I'll I'll be honest with you. I just love food. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, we talked we we I, we touched on culture, and I said it's how we go about stuff. But you find so yeah. much culture in food and how people feed themselves, feed their kids, oh, yeah. their families, and how they yeah. go how they go about it is so different, but so much the same. You know, diff- the yeah. process is different in terms of how long it takes. If you're farming or if you're going to the grocery store or whatever, or going to an open market, but the effort everyone goes through to arrive at the same destination, I've, I've taken care of this table, I've taken care of my family, I've you know, done whatever, is has always struck me and that there's, you can be successful culturally a lot of different ways to get to that end result. Now, some may do it quicker, some may do it tastier, but Cuis- it all gets us there. Cuis- cuisine is your doorway to culture. I will tell you that. Yeah. It starts with, I mean, I love different cuisines and cuisines are a good, unique insight into different cultures. So I agree with you. Well, we'll have to, we'll have to tackle that. That's for sure. And Mo, uh, I just want to say thank you for sharing the time and the insight and the story um, like I said earlier, I think I think I'd be afraid that if we wanted to keep this going, we could keep going for quite a while and uh, eat up a lot of time. But I think there's a lot of substance in there, man. And I, and I really appreciate the time and, and everything you put in. I appreciate your time, John. Thank you so much. Hey, we'll be talking soon. No doubt about it. You've been listening to Drowning in the Tech Talent Pool. This podcast is sponsored by Sabretooth. Sabretooth improves the quality of hire and speeds up the time to fill specialized machine learning, data engineering, data science, and developer roles, stretching tech recruiting budgets further by bringing the precision of retained search and the speed of contingent search to the market in one complete solution. Find out more at sbr2th.com and follow me, John Light, on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.